Good day, dear listeners. Steve Preda here with the Management Blueprint Podcast. And my guest today is Wayne Mullen, the CEO of Ugly Mug Marketing, a digital agency whose core business is not to build you a new website, revamp your brand, help you with your marketing, but to deliver results to your growth-oriented business. Wayne, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve, and thanks for the intro. I'm excited for our chat. I know uh, when we briefly chatted before, Sounds like we have a lot in common and a lot of shared beliefs. So I'm excited for this. Yeah, me too. Me too. I, I think uh, we have some good topics here. So let's start with, with your journey. Uh, we always start with the, the journey and yours is a particularly interesting one because I guess that's another commonality. I used to listen to Zig Ziglar CDs as well. So how did you uh, go from being an ambitious kid, listening to these CDs uh, through selling ads, starting a landscaping business and ending up running a marketing agency? Yeah. So in Rewind, that, that story unfolds exactly like you just said it. For whatever reason, Steve, one year for Christmas, my parents gave me some CDs from Zig Ziglar. I don't know what led to that decision to give me those CDs, but they gave me some CDs. For those who don't know what CDs are, it was back before everything was digital, <laughs> dating myself slightly. But they gave me those CDs and Zig CDs were on selling. And over the course of listening to those CDs, Zig sold me on the profession of selling. So I knew from that point forward that I wanted to go in sales. So I kind of altered what I was going to do right out of college. And I wanted to get a few years experience in sales. And that's exactly what I did. I wish I could tell you that I was good at sales when I started, but Steve, I was absolutely horrible. I have this one trait, which is stubbornness that served me well in that instance. Sometimes my stubbornness doesn't serve me well, but in this case, it served me well because I kept learning, kept growing, literally kept knocking on doors, having doors thumbed in my face but kept on going. Um, over the course of three years, I, I honed those skills. And what I noticed was that I was selling more and more for my company. The amount of revenue I was bringing in for the company kept growing and growing. And although my pay was increasing, those numbers kept getting further and further apart. In other words, there was a bigger and bigger gap between what I was bringing in and my pay. I had this dangerous thought that pops in our head sometimes. What if I went and did something for myself? What if I went and started something for myself? The only other skill I had at that time, Steve, was cutting grass. I'd cut grass all through high school, all through college. And so I decided to leave a really good corporate sales job Monday through Friday, eight to five, all the perks, all the benefits, and start a lawn and landscape company. Now, I'm in Louisiana. Summer times in Louisiana are not fun places to be, right? So this was going to be outside most of the days. Over the course of a three-year period, I grew that company from startup to a very large company. We were one of the probably two largest, one of the two largest in our region. It was December, and I decided to put the business up for sale. I was ready for the next challenge. And within two weeks, I had two different offers on that business. It was during the course of growing that business, though, to that point, that a lot of our actual customers from the lawn care company, a lot of other business owners in the area started coming to me, asking me, how are you growing? What are you doing to grow your business this quickly? And you know, at the end of the day, that answer was marketing. We were doing some very unique, very creative things with marketing. And those conversations turned into consulting. And that eventually turned into the business I have today. That's fascinating. So you went from sales, then you basically, I mean, a lot of people, I see that in the marketing world that then they figure out they get really good at marketing. Then they look for a product that they can sell because they figure kind of, Estimated to you that they can make much more money for themselves than as an employee. And then you actually switched horses because you realized that the product can be actually 
the service of, of selling or marketing. That's fantastic. Now, that's a great segue into our next topic, which is uh, the framework, the management blueprint. That's what I talk about it on the show. And uh, we talk about this concept that you call something like the natural progression framework, where you gain your, the trust of your customer over time. So how does that work? What, what, how does that framework uh, how did you discover this and what's the mechanics of it? Sure. Yeah. So this framework actually comes from sales. It comes from human psychology. You see, as I was developing my sales skills, what I noticed was that people always go through these same stages as they're making purchasing decisions. Now, if you want to become more effective as a salesperson, marketing starts coming into play, right? You start figuring out how can I position, how can I market myself so that I'm able to sell more. And when we think about selling, we think about humans making purchasing decisions. Really, the stages they go through, first of all, they obviously have to know about you. They have to know about your product, your service, whatever it is. Then they have to like you because if they know about you and they don't like you, there's no chance of moving forward. The next step is they have to trust that your product, your service, your thing is going to be worth more value to them than the money they part with. And so no liking and trusting are these core components of making purchasing decisions. And so when we think about marketing, what I realized was that out there in the world, there's a bunch of people who are strangers. They don't know about our company, our product, our service, or even us as salespeople. And so step one is I have to get those people the people I believe would be a good fit for what I do, the product or service, to know about me. So the question comes, what can I do to put my message, my name, in front of people who don't know about me, but who would probably benefit from what it is that I offer? So that's moving people from strangers, what I would call strangers, to friends. Mm -hmm. Once we move them to friends, they now know about us and they like us. Now, the, the big ingredient that moves people from friends into customers is that word that you talk about, trust. If people don't trust us, they're never, ever going to pull out their wallet and hand us this stuff called money. Mm-hmm. It, it's our job, though, to convey or evoke trust in this process. And where we get in trouble, Steve, is this, that we believe that if I stand up here loud enough and long enough and preach about how great my product or service is, eventually I'm going to wear you down and you're going to trust me enough to pull out your money. It doesn't work that way. As a matter of fact, it's actually the opposite effect, right? We begin tuning out those people who are quote unquote, screaming out us the loud, you know, the loudest trying to convince us and twist our arm to take action. Mm-hmm. You know, I always tell people, think about it. When you go to Amazon, if you buy things on Amazon or any website, what's one of the first things you do when you look at a product you're considering, you scroll down to the reviews and you read the reviews of that product. Now, here's the interesting thing, Steve. That company could have paid all of those people to go leave those reviews. It's against some terms of service, I'm sure, but who knows? Companies could do that. And yet we still trust those people, those random strangers, way more than we trust the company who actually made the thing that we're considering buying. So all of that to say, that's part of the natural progression. That is the attracting side. In other words, we're attracting strangers, turning them into friends and then into customers. The last super quick part of this whole progression is we have an opportunity as marketers to actually take our customers and turn them into evangelists for mm-hmm. our companies, our products and services. And I believe that so many marketers are short-sighted because we believe our sole job is to bring people to the point of purchase to get them to pull out their money. And then we're, we're all searching for the next stranger out there in the world. I believe that the greatest opportunity for marketers today is to spend some of that time and attention and effort and dollars 
turning existing customers into evangelists because we know what happens when we have evangelists. They tell their friends, they tell their family, and it makes our jobs so much easier. Yeah, I love this concept. And this is something I've been thinking about as well as to what this progression is. In my mind, and I call it the customer journey. You know, you get the customer and then you make this customer, you, you increase the value that they are getting from you. That you make them successful, basically. And that allows you to make maybe that customer into a recurring, a permanent customer that is continuously gives you money. And then the next stage is to turn them into some kind of a strategic partner for your business. And maybe that strategic partnership is them bringing further customers, or it could be selling each other products or sharing channels, whatever the case may be. But this is a really important idea to not to stop by getting those customers or even making them permanent, but leverage them and make them into an evangelist. Now, how does it work? How do you turn a customer into an evangelist? Yeah, so the number one step is this. We have to be honest with ourselves. And here's the thing I know about entrepreneurs, because I work with a lot of them. We are jaded. We are biased. We have blinders on. We often don't want to see the truth about our business. Why? Because it's our baby. It's the thing we poured our heart and soul and our life into, right? We're working around the clock on this thing, and we don't want to hear people tell us the ugly truth sometimes that we need to hear about our businesses. So what I would do is I would recommend doing what I call a litmus test, right? So we need to find out, are we actually meeting expectations or are we exceeding expectations? Because if you're not exceeding customer expectations, you have no hope and no chance of turning them into evangelists. Yes, you can have satisfied, quote unquote, satisfied customers by meeting expectations, but today satisfied customers aren't enough. We need evangelists for our brands. And so step one is we have to be willing to hear the harsh truth. We have to pull off these blinders. We have to seek out feedback that sometimes hurts us when we hear it. Mm-hmm. Is there a, a process for making exceeding expectations? Is it about just listening to the customer or maybe there's something else? I don't know if you need anything else, but what does that look like? Do I manage their expectation to begin with so that I can exceed them? Do I sandbag what I offer? Or do I go out and innovate uh, so I can actually offer them more than I offered everything I could when I saw them? But I could, I actually have now more to offer to them. And this is how I exceed. What is your process for exceeding expectations? Yeah, exceeding expectation begins with a clear understanding of what does a reasonable customer have the right to expect mm-hmm. when they interact with us. Mm-hmm. So we understand that there's going to be a few people who are unreasonable. We're not trying to necessarily figure out how to how to exceed their expectations. What we're looking for is the vast majority. How, what are, what are they coming to us with expectation wise And one exercise that's super simple to do is take out a sheet of paper and write down all the way down the left-hand side, all of the points of interaction that someone has with you during the purchasing process. So from the first time they visit your website or first time they pick up the phone or the first time they walk in the door, ask yourself the question, when they pick up the phone, what does a reasonable person have the right to expect? Do we answer the phone in one ring, 10 rings? Do we answer it live? Is it go to voicemail first? Does it go to one of those things where you stop pushing one, two, or seven, 14 different hours? You know, <laughs> what do they expect? Because until we clearly identify what they expect, we don't know if we're actually exceeding that thing. Move to the next phase. So when someone orders our product, how long do they expect before it's delivered? Is it two days? Is it 10 days? Is it two weeks? Is it the same day? 
What do they expect? And until we crystallize that on paper, we don't know from meeting that. So if you go down the list and you write that, all the points of interaction all the way down the side, and you write down what it looks like to meet their expectations, you can then say, okay, if they expect us to answer the phone in three rings, we can exceed that by answering it in one ring or two rings. If they expect to receive the product in a week, can we get it to them in five days? And you have the sheet of paper that then you can say, look, I want you to follow a customer through their journey, like you were talking about. I want you to follow them through this process and I want you to document, are we meeting or are we exceeding those expectations? I love this. Uh, this is great. So you basically benchmark the expectations of a reasonable customer and then you basically beat it. It's kind of a value analysis. So maybe the rest of the market, this is what they have made these customers being used to. Maybe it's a you know, 14-day delivery and maybe not picking up the phone, but uh, within one punch, uh, you can reach someone or they call you back in half an hour. Then you can beat them by picking up the phone. And then you have a clear uh, list. This is, this is awesome. This is actually very tangible. Love it. So one thing that, uh, and I'm switching gears here a little bit. One thing that you mentioned was, and we talked about this actually this morning when we were chatting on your LinkedIn uh, post, that the culture of an organization is really, really important. One of the things that you mentioned, which kind of perked my ear, was that you have a very young staff, uh, mainly Gen Zs, and you build a very high performance and accountability culture. And I totally believe that young people are perform can perform very highly, but a lot of people tell me, oh, this young generation, they don't know, uh, they don't want to work, they just want life balance. Even in ancient Rome, people were complaining about the young generation, so that's not a new thing. But uh, what do you specifically do to get your young people be uh, accountable and high-performing? Sure. I, I love this question, Steve, and I, I love this topic because what I believe to be true today is that your culture is the ultimate competitive advantage. In the marketplace, in the world that we live in today, a strong culture is going to beat the best strategy that exists. I think it was, um, was it Drucker who said that? Culture yeah. eats strategy for breakfast, right? Yeah. So first of all, what I would say is this, if you have the expectation that Gen Z or millennials or whoever are gonna be poor performers, they don't wanna work, they don't want all these things, you're gonna look for evidence that makes those things true about your team. So your belief, it's the- Confirmation bias. Yeah, confirmation bias, exactly. We begin looking for those things that we believe to be true. So if I believe that about my team, I'm only gonna see those things. Now on the flip side of that, if I believe that this generation, this younger generation wants to contribute, they want to deliver high value, they want to pour themselves into their work, they want a good mission to pursue, I'm gonna look for evidence of those things. So number one would be getting clear about our own personal beliefs. I believe that that is fundamental to all great leadership. Mm -hmm. Number two, what I would say is expectations. What I've discovered is this generation, because of our beliefs about the generation, we lower our expectations of them and for them. And instead, I believe that I hold my team to a very high standard, very high expectations. And because of that, they live up to these expectations. They live up to these standards. Now, there's a lot of things that go into the making of all of this, right? And into the, the, the blending of all these ingredients together. But at the core, those I believe are the two fundamental pieces. And 
on culture specifically, I think it's important to remember that culture comes from the same Latin word as cultivate. So when you think about farming, you think about cultivating the soil, it's not a one and done thing, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to cultivate the soil before you put the seed in it. You're also going to cultivate the soil once the plants, once the crop starts growing, because you got to keep the weeds out of it. And then after that crop is done, you're going to recultivate. You may till in the dying crops to refertilize, re whatever all that does to the soil, right? It's this constant effort of cultivating the soil. A culture is not something that you just do one time or you do it a quarterly team meeting and you're done with it until next quarter. It's living, it's breathing, it's daily in our organizations. Mm -hmm. It's a great analogy and a great etymology. Thanks for sharing this. I'm going to use this with my clients. It's cultivate. Uh, it's a daily thing. It's not a one and done. You don't just put it on the wall and then you're done with your culture. That's actually just the beginning, right? You have to uh, live it and breathe it and remind people. Love it. So you've got a great culture. I assume you've got a great culture if people are performing highly and they are accountable. What about autonomy? So the other thing that we talk about is that uh, you can have high staff autonomy and at the same time you can have high alignment. So, so how does it work? I mean, sometimes... People think about this. I mean, if if I let people do, uh, you know, their own thing, then it's going to be difficult to align them because they're going to be uh, focused on their own vision. If I align them too much, then they might feel micromanaged, and then their autonomy is hurt. So, so how do you handle uh, the dichotomy of autonomy and alignment? Yeah, I love it. it. It is definitely dichotomy, Steve, between those two things and keeping those two things balanced. Um, I love to think of it as kind of a chart where on one axis we have alignment, on the other we have autonomy. So if you have a, an organization that is very highly aligned, you're gonna have a lot of order, right? So everything's gonna be in order, everything's gonna be all put together. Now on the other axis, let's say that we, we don't have high alignment, but we have high autonomy, what we end up with there is chaos because no one knows what to do. They're just running around doing a bunch of business stuff and it's very chaotic because they're not aligned around a central thing. But when we have both alignment and autonomy, what we end up with is the ability to scale a company. Now, how do we achieve those two things? That's where the trick comes in. That's where it gets tricky, balancing these two things out. But what I believe to be true is that both are, you're able to do both of those things simultaneously. You're able to keep those two things balanced, but you can't do it if you're not aware that both of those things are at play, right? Because all too often when I'm speaking to entrepreneurs, they're stuck in this, this battle between micromanagement and freedom, like chaos. And in reality, there's a point in the middle. And that doesn't mean sometimes we're not going to be leaning too heavily into micromanaging, quote unquote, but there's also times we'll be leaning the other way. And so what I believe to be true, when we think about alignment, the ingredients that are needed there, we have to have a very clear, compelling future. What's the vision? Where are we going? Second, what's the mission? Why are we here? Why do we exist? What do we get up for in the morning? What's our why? So those are two core things that we need there, you know, the vision and the mission. And when it comes to the team itself, I think that, you know, number one, they want to know where are we going? Number two, why does it matter? Like, why does it matter that we're pursuing this thing? Number three, what is my role in this process? In other words, for me as an individual, based on why I'm here in the company. What is my role in that vision, the direction we're going? Mm -hmm. 
And then the next question is, now that I know my role, how are you going to measure my performance? How, yeah. How's my performance going to be measured in the pursuit of that thing? And so when we get clarity around those few simple things, in other words, we provide that picture to the team members, we're able to then balance the alignment, right? Alignment around the vision and the mission, where we're going, why we exist, and creating the parameters or the frameworks that allow the autonomy because they understand where we're going. We also give them, here's your role in this process. Here's how you contribute to this mission that we're on. Yeah, I love it. I mean, this is also what I teach my clients. Uh, you have to have, uh, I look at it like a mountain where you have the moon in the background and your why is the moon. So you're never going to reach your, your why, but it's something that it creates the inspiration for you to move forward. It's your long term. That's how you change the world. And then the tip of the mountain, the pinnacle, is basically your BHAG, your big, hairy, ambitious goal, your long-term focus, single goal that allows everyone to, it's like the North Star. And then you break it down from there. You know, what are your milestones, medium term? What are you, What is your strategy? How you're different? How you, you're not competing to be the best, but to compete to provide differentiated value. And then you break it down into an annual plan and then you have your quarterly objectives and your metrics, the weekly metrics and the daily activities that feed into it. So I see this as a mountain with the daily activities at the bottom and everything feeds into your mission in the end. So uh, I love that. Uh, so uh, so that's you need the structure and then people can feel autonomously, uh, but they are also highly performing. I also like to think about this as making people mini CEOs. So define their function and then Basically, draw the structure for them and then let go. You know, you, you own sales. Now figure out how to grow sales or you own a delivery. Figure out how we're going to scale delivery. Uh, it's yours, uh, your, your initiative, and still you're aligned. Now, what about communication? And one of the things that uh, a lot of uh, entrepreneurs fall down on is communication. They have the vision in their head. Uh, maybe they share it, uh, you know, once a quarter with the team, but but then they are just doing their own thing and they expect everyone to remember it the whole quarter. So what is in your mind communication? And when you say over-communicate, what does it look like over-communicating? Yes, Steve. So I, I got this from a gentleman who has a company. He has about 700 employees. Um, they do around 70 million a year. And he told me, he's the co-founder and CEO of the company. And he told me that his role in his head now is the CRO, Chief Reminding Officer. Mm -hmm. And so his entire role, he views it as, I have to ensure that the vision and the mission gets pushed down through and into the organization. And he talked about the, just the need to constantly repeat it, to constantly communicate it, and to do it in different ways. So not just auditorial, you know, verbally, but to do it visually, to do it all these different ways to help push it down into the organization. Because when you are tired of saying it, they are just now beginning to truly understand it, right? So that's number one. The other way we love to do this, or I love to do this within our company, is to have other people help communicate those things within the company. So my primary role is to push that down into the organization, right? It's about alignment so that they can have autonomy, but then to have them give them responsibilities at our meetings. So we do weekly team meetings where it's every single person's there to talk about the core values. Give me an example of how you, you live this out. You saw some of our team live this out, or you saw a customer or client live this out. 
Same thing with vision, same thing with mission. So we rotate through and what it does is it creates this identity of people watching for other people to live out core values, other people to live into our vision for where we're going as an organization. I would say this, that as entrepreneurs, typically what I find is that we believe that once we've said it, once we've expressed the thing we want to be true, our work is done and we can move on to the next idea, right? We love jumping from thing to thing, idea to idea. But one of the lessons I've had to learn is I've had to learn to back up, right? I've had to learn to tamp some of my ideas down to put them down for the sake of not creating confusion in the organization and for the sake of clarity around what matters most right now. So that's why I think it's important, number one, for entrepreneurs to have a coach, a mentor, someone they can go to with their ideas, vet their ideas, talk about their ideas, because if you are going to your team all the time with all of your ideas as an entrepreneur, number one, I can promise you you're creating confusion because you're talking about the, the vision and the mission is the most important thing and the goals um, are the most important things, but yet you're bringing all these other ideas and so they're getting confused. Number two, I think it's important because it gives us a sounding board, someone to vet those ideas off of who gives us an outsider perspective. So what I would say is in this whole makeup of entrepreneurs, typical entrepreneurs, we have to be aware of how the things that naturally serve us can also, on the other hand, naturally cause us to stumble and to be weaker in certain areas than we need to be. Yeah, that's uh, I totally resonates with this. And, and this is actually very challenging. I mean, most entrepreneurs I know that are really entrepreneurs, they, they are in it because they love to come up with the ideas. They're excited about innovating and figuring out, playing with ideas that they may not want to implement, but they want to discuss with people because they are curious about the, the concept. And then people think that this is already a thing and they get confused. And from the entrepreneur side, it's really hard not to do that because that's the whole thing that interests you, right? It's day-to-day -day business, starting a business. is kind of boring. You want the exciting stuff, which is strategizing and growing the business and coming up with new uh, concepts to sell and to uh, innovate. So that's a huge uh, challenge. And that's a good, good point. I mean, to find a coach and to use the coach as your sounding board. As some people say that uh, you, you need to have a CEO and the CEO is going to be the filter. And then, you know, you can basically, the, you tell the CEO, don't take everything at face value. We just gonna discuss it. And then they're going to push back if this is too much and they act as the filter. But to have a coach, that's that's also a great, great way to handle that problem. Yeah, yeah. That's I awesome. Agree. So Wayne, lots of exciting things. So we have to build a great culture where people are uh, empowered, they're accountable, they're highly performing, they, are, uh, they know where you're going, how you're going to get there, they are aligned, your vision, their function is clearly defined, and then you have to over-communicate the message. Uh, I love the chief reminding officer and uh, what you said about uh, not just verbally, but visually, and not to confuse your people. But these are all very important messages. So if people would like to learn about how your agency doesn't confuse people, how do you clarify the message? How do you allow people to actually differentiate themselves? Where do they find out about it? How do they reach out to you? How do they contact you? Where are you? Sure. Yes, yeah, the easiest place is our website. And that's just uglymugmarketing.com. Uh, email addresses, phone numbers, all of our social media links are right there on our website. So that's probably the easiest spot to find us. 
Awesome. Well, definitely check out Wayne Mullins uh, from Ugly Mug Marketing. Well, actually, I, I have to ask you a final question. Why Ugly Mug Marketing? <laughs> Great question. So the name Ugly Mug Marketing comes from a quote by a gentleman of the name David Ogilvy. So David Ogilvy was co-founder of Ogilvy & Mather, at one point the largest ad agency in the world. They're still in the top 10. David Ogilvy's background was in direct response marketing. And rumor has it that in the offices of their company, he had a phrase that he would say often, and that was, I would rather an ad that's ugly and effective over one that's beautiful but isn't. And so in our industry, the advertising industry, what's interesting is there's all of these design awards, and there's this constant pull to enter to win design awards and you know film award, all this stuff. And so from the very beginning, I wanted to ensure that our name reminded us of why we exist. We don't exist to win awards. We exist to get results for our clients. And I didn't want us to become distracted by doing, quote unquote, beautiful things for the sake of beautiful things. That's awesome. Uh, we have a chocolate brand in Hungary, which is uh, the tagline. It's kind of a bad, badly looking chocolate. It's a very rugged piece of chocolate. It's not straight. It's, it's kind of a weird thing. And, and the, the tagline is ugly, but delicious. So ugly but delicious. That's kind of the same it. same idea. All right, Wayne. Well, thank you for the conversation. Uh, do check out uh, Wayne Mullins, CEO of Ugly Mug Marketing. Check out their work. Uh, they have really a great website and a great uh, social media work as well. And reach out to Wayne. Yes, he is on LinkedIn. It's not the easiest to find, but uh, you can find him on LinkedIn and you can reach out to him there as well. Thank you, Wayne. And uh, wish you everyone a great day. Thanks so much.